Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoone. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, it's me, it's Nicole. I am back with, gosh, episode 197. And it is a doozy. You're going to love this one. I just want to start out by saying thank you. You know, the last few episodes, I've been in a raw place. It doesn't just go away. I'm not like, I'm better now or anything. I mean, when trauma, which today's guest specializes in, when trauma happens to you or people around you or even people you don't even know, but you feel it in your gut and your heart and your whole body, it takes a while and it takes a while to heal. And, and there's no rushing it and there's no magic pill. And so I just say thank you today for sticking with me when I was definitely feeling quite a bit raw, when I could barely record intros (laughs) to my podcast, um, when I could barely get through some of the interviews. I appreciate you. Many of you reached out to me via email, via DM, some of you via text. Um, I, I, you just don't realize how much it means to me. And I didn't reply to everyone because I, I literally couldn't. I am still replying. Someday you might be like, I sent her that note two months ago and she just replied. <laughs> um, but I want you to know that you're important to me. I don't do this podcast for me. I mean, kind of at my heart. I do it, I start with me, I start with the things that I think matter and the messages that come from people who are making a difference, but I do it for you because I feel better when I'm lifting and celebrating other people in this world. It's my way of giving back. So, you know, I always say like, I do this because I want us to feel less alone in this world. Well, I'll be honest, that does start with me. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for commenting. Thank you for following me. Thank you for like being, you know, part of my email newsletter community. Thank you. You're amazing. And I want to tell you, (laughs) you're also not crazy. Today's guest is a special one. The title, You Are Not Crazy with Britt Frank. Oh my gosh. There's so many nuggets in today's conversation. I honestly, I don't know how you could get through the thing without stopping like 50 times and uh, writing down the little nuggets as you go. I don't want to start out by letting you know there is a trigger warning and I'd call it a little person listening warning. (laughs) Uh, This episode may trigger people who have gone through sexual trauma. We talk about sexual abuse and other heavy topics, and we swear a bit. So please be aware of your environment when listening. I have yet another insanely smart, insightful, brilliant woman who is put on this planet to help others, or in Brit's case, to help others heal and move forward in their lives from whatever is holding them back. Brit Frank is a therapist, 
teacher, speaker, and trauma specialist who's committed to dismantling the mental health myths that keep us feeling stuck and sick. Her work focuses on empowering people to understand the inner mechanisms of their brains and bodies and how they connect. When we know how things work, the capacity for choice is restored and life can and does change. Plain and simple, Brit is the therapist we all wish we had. And we can have her. You can work with her through her business, The Greenhouse in Kansas City, or thanks to a pandemic, virtually anywhere. So I, uh, I, I encourage you to head over to her website, which is listed in the show notes, and definitely follow her on social media at Britt, B-R-I-T-T, Frank, F-R-A-N-K. I was introduced to Britt by my friend and previous guest, Meredith Atwood of the Same 24 Hours podcast. She's actually been on this podcast as as well as the She Runs It podcast that I have been doing for a few months with the new skirt sports owner, Sarah Ratzliff. Meredith, I owe you a big one. Having a personal connection to Brit is one of the highlights of my life right now. (laughs) After you listen to her today, I'm sure you're going to feel the same. She's amazing. So again, be sure to get over to her Instagram and follow her. She is getting ready to release a book. It might be a year from now, but it's going to come sometime soon. Um, And it is called The Science of Stuck. So it gives you another sense for what we're going to talk about today. And as always, I took the liberty to have a personal therapy session in our conversation, but I think you'll both enjoy and relate to the various angles of it. All right, everybody, on that note, let's get ready for a good one. It's time to get Britt on the show. Britt! It's so great, 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 great to see your face. I've been listening to your voice on like 1 million podcasts. You are, you're everywhere. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, it is a really good thing because your message is so important and the work you do is so important and the help you are, you know, bringing to people is, it's phenomenal and we need you. We need you in this world. Thank you. (laughs) I'm glad I stuck around. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the help you do for other people is what I want to focus on today. And you are widely, you're a psychotherapist. You are a speaker. You work with people individually, but really your main area of expertise is trauma. Am I right on that? That's right, which is a very broad, all-encompassing, but, you know, trauma just as defined by anything less than nurturing that overwhelms our brain pretty much covers everything. You know, it's not like there are people who have it and people who don't. It's to what degree, if you're human, you have it. And then it's just a matter of degrees after that. You know, how did you stumble into this field? Like, is this through personal experience? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So out of college, I worked in advertising and just addicted, depressed, anxious, personality disorder. It's just a hot mess of a human being. Like I cannot express enough what a hot mess of a human being I was. And so after a decade of being a hot mess, I stumbled upon trauma work, got better, 
and was like, this is all I want to talk about. This is all I want to do. This is all I want to read about. I'm just going to change careers. And so I made a big old pivot and here we are. You know, I, I feel like I've been to therapy for multiple things in my life. Um, more recently, like marriage counseling and relationship therapy. And mm-hmm. it always bugs me when my therapist didn't have any issues with their own relationships. <laughs> like, you know, it actually gave me comfort that my last therapist had, was like divorced twice. <laughs> no, that's good or bad. But, um, you know, you talk about being a hot mess. You, you live in Kansas City right now, don't you? I do. I was born and raised in New York and I went to school in the South and then I lived in California for a while. I lived in Arizona for a while. The Midwest is just, I love it in Kansas city. It's a great town. It's the air is so thick. You could chew it. <laughs> That's it's true. like, I grew up in Chicago and now I live in Colorado and I literally had the frizziest hair in yeah. Chicago. It was like curly and frizzy. And I came to Colorado and it immediately just dropped and became a bland flat little mess. I can't do anything with, but it's funny. There's actually, this is a total side note. There is a chain of hair salons out here called Chicago hair. But then I was like, that reminds me of like my eighties hair, which was like super high and you like curled up the top curl as high as you could. It's so funny. But, um, so you are deeply and happily planted in the great Midwest, you know, the land where people are nice and people are happy. So is that partly why like you needed a little bit of love and soothing after the things you've been through? And no disrespect to the East Coast or the West Coast or the Southwest or the Northeast or the Southeast. These are wonderful places to live. What I needed more than anything was to slow down. I needed to slow down by a lot. And the Midwest is, yes, the people are wonderful. I love the people here. I love the lifestyle here. But more than anything, the Midwest is a slower pace of life. Um, And I needed that. I needed to, it's, it's, you know, it's affordable. It's, you know, the people aren't slow, but the pace of life is, and I needed that. And every time I go to New York or California, I am reminded my nervous system just functions better with a slow place as my home base. I find that so interesting. I recently also made a big uh, life change and moved from Boulder, Colorado, where I'd lived for 25 years to Steamboat Springs, which is a town of less than 15,000 people in the mountains. And Our whole thing was we wanted to slow down. Mm -hmm. I literally set a goal two years ago. I set two goals. One was sell my business and the second one was change my pace. Mm -hmm. And neither of them happened two years ago, but they both happened the next year. And and they happened concurrent. Like they had to happen together, I think, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there's, there's also probably like a physical and hormonal effect as we get older, where our adrenals are just like taking over and going crazy and we get exhausted. So what do you find in yourself and other people that told you it was time to slow down? Well, I had a nervous breakdown and not like a spiritual awakening one, like a full on, like two shades from, you know, killing myself nervous breakdown. Um, And so it wasn't like this light bulb awakening where I saw the light and I had clarity. It was, okay, my choices here are, you know, death or find a way to crawl and claw my way out of the hole that I dug myself into. And then I climbed out and I'm like, oh, life is really fun and people are really cool. And I'm so glad I crawled out of the hole. And so 
that's sort of where I came from and where I landed. It's weird because like life was fun and people were cool while you were in your hole. You just couldn't see it. Right. Right. No, there were no people. There was no life. There was no sunshine. And like, I just felt like I missed a punch on my human card. Like they let me out of the factory and sent me to earth and they forgot to finish installing the software properly. <laughs> Can we backtrack then? I need to learn more about your path here. Um, everyone listening is like, well, what'd she go through? Like you, you go, you kind of glossed over addictions, depression, like blah, 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 suicidal. St- and we need to know. So what, what happened in your life that brought you here? Well, the funny thing is, is if you looked at my life on paper, everything looks great. And that's a big part of my whole, you are not crazy mission. I didn't come from a war torn, you know, ravaged place with systemic oppression, you know, like I didn't have to, I wasn't subject to systemic race. I mean, you know, as a woman patriarchy, sure. But you know, I had a lot of privilege and on paper, everything looked fine. And it's large, you know, my stuff was largely what is my problem? Everything is fine. Why am I blah, blah, blah. Why am I thinking this? Why am I feeling this? And so it's really insidious that traumas that you can't see because everything quote looks fine, really do a number on people. And like, I am a testament to that, you know, like I didn't grow up being beaten to bruised. I didn't grow up in a domestic violence household, but there are a lot of ways that am I allowed to swear on your podcast? You can do whatever you want to do, Brit. (laughs) There are a lot of ways that the fuckery of life can creep in and what they call big teachers traumas like assault, war, um, you know, mass shootings, things like that are obviously traumatic and obviously could have severe and lasting consequences. And those are the ones that tend to be validated for good reason. But there's like a whole nother category called little T traumas. And it doesn't mean that they're insignificant. It just means they're not things that you would necessarily think are classified under trauma. And that would be like um, a job loss or a move or a sudden change in financial status or being bullied. You know, being bullied is a big deal. And I, you know, I was tormented as a child all the way up through. And that wouldn't get filed under big T trauma, but nonetheless has pretty serious consequences. And my family's crazy, but they're not overtly crazy. And covert crazy is tricky to nail down. Oh, my God. So much here. Um Well, first of all, why the hell were you bullied? You're amazing. What was going on there? Oh my God, my inner children are just like, oh my God, they've been waiting their whole life to hear that. Oh my God. So thank you for my therapy. I didn't think this was going to be my therapy hour. (laughs) We'll turn it into that. (laughs) But it is. Um, I just didn't have the, I didn't have social skills. There was so much sexual trauma in my home um, that I, you know, children who are experiencing just toxic dysfunctional dynamics don't know necessarily how to relate to humans outside the home. And I didn't. So I didn't have a whole lot of emotional regulation skills. I didn't have social skills. I was awkward. You know, it was, it was not a good, it was not a good look. It was really hard. What is sexual trauma? You, you experienced sexual trauma in your household? It did. Yes. Okay. So these, that's a, to me, that's a big T trauma. Is that, is, yeah. You would think, however, and anybody that's been subject to sexual abuse would probably testify if it's not violent and trigger warning sidebar, we're going to be talking about sexual trauma right now. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, if it's not violent rape, 
a lot of times, especially with incest trauma, it gets kind of like, well, it wasn't really bad and they weren't mean to me and nobody was, you know, forcing. So it's very confusing, that type of trauma. Um, because it's not violent and it's not aggressive. It, it's guised under the umbrella of care and love and whatever. And so I didn't even know I had sexual trauma until I was like 25, where a very astute counselor said, guess what? That's not normal. That's actually really, really abusive. And I'm like, abuse? No, I mean, they it's like, oh, no, no, no. So it's really important for people to know big T trauma is one category. It is not the only category of trauma. Can we uh, continue down this this rabbit hole trigger for a minute? Yeah. Um, because I think people who are listening might benefit from learning a little more about signs. So say, like, we're, I'm assuming one of your parents was involved or a sibling? Well, I'm not going to go into specifics because okay. they're all still around and they mm-hmm. all creep on my Instagram and listen to things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't go into specifics, but suffice to say, I am a sexual trauma survivor. Well, if, if you, I'm just wondering if there are signs that a parent can notice or see that might raise a flag that they can then stop this behavior or what, whatever's going on in the household while it's happening. You know, yeah, there's a, I mean, there are check, you can Google like incest checklist and there are a lot of things, but really the, you know, the solution to a lot of this stuff, if you're talking as far as parenting goes, is just being aware and talking to the kids. If you have an open relationship, if you're talking about body boundaries, I mean, it's not that hard. If you teach your kids, here are the places that people shouldn't touch then you're going to prevent a lot of it. You know, there are a lot of, (laughs) there are a lot of households, mine included, that didn't have that conversation. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, I mean, I think that's number one is communication. And you had mentioned too, like your communication skills had not been developed very well as a child. And, you know, I think that is such an important skill for us at, you know, throughout our entire life to focus on, because once we stop communicating, we go within and that generally can lead to darkness. Oh, I, ha- I lived in my head. I mean, I was very, books were my escape. You know, for my lack of social skills, I was really good at writing and journaling and reading. I just went up into my head and I didn't come down until almost 30 and went, oh, here's the planet I've been living on. You know, and I just want to give you like a hug right now. I wish we could oh. do this podcast in person oh. because you know, to, to live with something you didn't realize was a problem, but then potentially was creating sort of the undercurrent for some of the other things that reared their heads later. And only to find out when you're in your mid twenties, like it's just, it's, that's traumatizing. That's traumatizing to hear. Well, people get really hung up on that. Am I a trauma survivor? I don't really feel. And my solution to that is, is your life working? Are you happy? How's your relationship with food and sex and your body? If you're not living your best life, if you don't feel in control of your choices, just assume you fall under the umbrella of trauma survivor. We don't have to split hairs over the terminology. It's like, is your life working the way you want it to be? You know, to whatever degree choice is available and resources and access are available, then okay, then we don't have to call it anything. Let's just focus on feeling better. And trauma is, you know, there's things in your brain you need to know about so you can not be stuck. But, um, you know, I tell people don't get hung up on the lingo too much. 
Um, well, I'm going to get hung up on it for one more minute because <laughs> I want to talk about a big T trauma that recently occurred in my old hometown that I mentioned, Boulder, Colorado. And I think, you know, we, we've just been talking about your path and, and potentially many other people's paths of, you know, layers of little traumas that may have built and, and grown over their whole lives. Um, but this is more of like a, it's a multi-layered trauma and it's a communal trauma and I wonder if you have thoughts or advice on, you know, I'm going to give you my perspective. I don't live in Boulder anymore. And I almost feel guilty for feeling so bad. Mm. Like, this is this my trauma to deal with too? I mean, I have been like ripped apart, can't sleep. It's been brutal thinking about the community I lived in, the, how, the store we used to visit multiple times a week, the, you know, the people who lost their lives, the people who watched people lose their lives, like all of it. And um, I just, I feel like there's a lot of healing that needs to come from this. But then on the flip side of it, there's these stages of, of grief that, uh, many of us are going through, and I'm finding myself a little bit stuck. I'm finding myself stuck in both sadness, but then also I'm stuck on the edge of anger. Sure. And I just, I don't know, I just wondered if you have any thoughts on this whole process. And the word stuck really resonates with me here. It's like, keep, I want to try to find ways to keep it moving and hopefully come out of it with something okay. Yeah. Oh, and you said something so important when you started sharing that, which is that you feel almost guilty for feeling so bad. And that's really with any, with anything, whether it's a shooting or a little, it doesn't matter. Validating your feelings is the first step out of stuck. Like, this is how you feel. Okay. Like if we can't start there, then we're, we're going nowhere very quickly. Yeah. Like this is how you feel. And there are, you know, there are sciencey reasons why you feel so bad. And they're not, if you, if you could choose not to feel bad, you would have. So that means it's not really a choice. It's your body responding for any number of reasons. You know, the primary reason being it's tragic and scary and completely shakes your sense of certainty and grounding and safety and familiarity and all the things. But like you have a right to your feelings. You letting yourself feel bad is not taking anything away from somebody else. That's a really powerful <laughs> validating it and owning it and being okay with where you are, you know? Yes. And the grief thing, I mean, I could talk forever because grief is one of my, you know, close to my heart topics. The stages of grief, which is sort of the general consensus of how grief work is done is, is not technically accurate. The stages of grief was like designed for people who are dying, not for people who are mourning or grieving. And so I use the four tasks of grief model. It's from Harvard, um, a guy named William Warden, who is like just genius. And it's four tasks, the first of which be, you know, like letting yourself have your feelings. The first task is just you know, contending with the reality that thing happens. You know, feeling your feelings is task two. Task three is making adjustments to the world that you now live in, you know, and then task four is finding new, you know, finding ways to make new meaning out of the tragedies that happen. How do you move forward? How do you make, not that you can make sense out of nonsense or make sense out of senseless tragedy, but how do you personally create meaning in your life? You know, the meaning that I made from my personal traumas was I'm going to become a therapist and I'm going to alchemize all the bullshit that I, you know, 
dealt with and turn it into something healing. Okay, that doesn't mean everyone has to become a therapist, but everybody has the potential to take shit and alchemize it into something helpful and useful. Is there such a thing as like community healing together? Like, how does that work? I mean, it's weird. I suddenly, don't you suddenly feel connected to everyone around you who's seen or experienced this thing? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, tends to happen with big tragedies. You know, 9-11 was, I'm from New York. So that was a really interesting example of all of a sudden a community tragedy turns into community bonding and all the things that keep us apart and separate and different and judging and critical kind of melt away. And we were able to see each other as humans. So communal healing is so powerful. Well, and the thing too, is like, there's just such a political underlayer that feels um, important, but also taboo. Like no one wants to go there, but if it's just this like really dicey topic right now, you know, and I've so many people have sent me notes and like, don't think about anything political right now. And I'm like, I can't help it. I gotta, I gotta validate myself. I gotta feel my feelings. I'm feeling it. Like, you know, this need to like, what can I do? This call to action piece. Which is a great question. Cause you know, like I always say the opposite of trauma is choice because if you could have chosen, you would have chosen not to deal with trauma. So, you know, trauma is the complete thievery of our, of our agency and our choice. So anywhere, anywhere in your life that you can be mindful and conscious of making choices, that's going to bring just a little tablespoon of healing to your system. Not that that's going to fix everything, but if you can make a choice for what can I do, it doesn't mean you have to help other people. That's a, that's a whole nother thing. Like you don't always have to be of service. Sometimes you get to be the recipient of support and love and all the things, but what can I do to help myself or to support myself or to what can I do period? What can I eat today? What can I wear today are really powerful choices when you're overwhelmed by really big T dramas. Yes. Yeah. One, one step at a time. <laughs> I mean, really, that, that <laughs> phrase is so cliche, but it's powerful and it's true. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, I kind of want to tie trauma and mental health together a little bit because this is one of those um, political and polarizing topics that has comes out of things like this, which, so I recently um, did a little Facebook post and shared that I was really upset and I wanted to speak with some people who are working on common sense gun laws, right? And it created a firestorm on my Facebook page, um, which had nothing to do really with the guns. It all turned into a mental health uh, discussion. Mm -hmm. And people were like, Nicole, if you're, because I, someone said, I think you should, who was a someone who is a second amendment backer and a gun right owner, you know, gun, gun owner was like, I don't think that's the issue. I think you need to have some people come on and talk about mental illness. And I said, well, I am going to be talking to many people about the mental health side of this. And someone else who I dearly love and respect, who, who is a huge mental health advocate said, Nicole, read this article. You, we don't want to stigmatize mental health, mental illness mm -hmm. any more than it already is. And other people came on, there were just like a whole flurry of activity around that, that, that topic. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on, you know, this whole idea of stigmatizing 
mental health, try not to stigmatize mental health, destigmatizing mental health, and even how it relates to the trauma that you go through. Okay. So there's, that's a loaded. That's I know. A- there's way too much. I, I don't even know where I went with that. That's okay. I'm gonna tease. I'm gonna answer it how I, I'm gonna answer it how I want to answer it. So, Good. <laughs> do it. Do it. That's why you're here. Which question? Like, which piece of that do I want to jump into? My whole my head is all yelling. Say this. Don't say this. Say this. Don't say this. Oh my gosh. Okay. So everybody, in my head needs to chill for a second. So okay, stigma. Let's just go there. I think the problem with stigma is people confuse intention and. Impacts. So there's this belief that if we dig, if we destigmatize mental illness, that somehow we are co-signing on bad behavior, and that is a big, like that's not okay. And I can see why there's stigma. If you believe that destigmatizing equals consent or you know saying it's okay, then yeah, you're going to keep stigmatizing things. We can separate someone's intention may not have been to cause harm. And I'm not speaking about anything specific right now. I'm just saying generally. Someone may have had good intentions, but that doesn't change the impact of their behavior. Someone, and so no one gets to say, well, my mental illness made me do it. And that's why I acted like an asshole. It's like, mm, well, we have to separate those two. Your mental health issues may have been the cause of your behavior. And that does not negate the severity of the impact of your behavior, nor should it negate the consequences of said behavior. So separate. You sound like a lawyer right now. <laughs> I'm a Jewish <laughs> That was how I was trained. Yeah. You know? But it's true. Because people, same thing, you can validate your feelings all day long, but just because you have a right to your feelings doesn't mean you have a right to every behavior that you want. Yes. Yes. And every sort of society has different norms. Right. Or, you know, a range of allowed behaviors. Right. Yeah. Right. What we That's say true. in therapy is all feelings are welcomed, all behaviors are not. So yeah. if you desire this, this, that, or the other, fine. Like you're, you have a right to, thoughts are all free. You can think whatever you want, but your behaviors are going to have consequences. So we really want to separate mental illness is not a good excuse to, and I say this as somebody who's been diagnosed with many mental illnesses. I don't identify with my mental illness diagnosis now, but as someone who's had them, mental illness is not a a justification for bad behavior. It may explain it, doesn't excuse it. So is it like, so for instance, I am a recovering alcoholic. I stopped drinking 12 plus years ago and I will potentially could always carry that label, if you will, (laughs) right? You mentioned you don't identify with your mental illness diagnoses. Mm-hmm. So are they curable? I'm like using air quotes a lot right now. Are they, is it like, can you be cured of yeah. these diagnoses or these traumas and just completely be able to separate yourself from them and move on as a different person? I love that question because the word cure is also a loaded word. So, you know, if the word cure means you're never triggered and you never struggle and you never have symptoms, then no, of course I'm not cured. However, my, and I'm, you know, a recovering chemical addict too. I don't identify with that label, but like the way I explain it to people is there were parts of my system who adapted to my life by using really shitty fucked up behaviors, you know, one of which was addiction. Another was eating disorders. You know, a lot of my depression and anxiety were my brain's best efforts to adapt 
to the insanity that was around me. Once I dealt with the trauma, the symptoms really, really calmed down. Now, does that mean I never have like days where I can't get out of bed? No. Does that mean I never have panic attacks? No. But I understand that there's a brain thing going on and it's not an illness. It's my brain doing exactly what the brain is supposed to do, which is keep you alive. So I'm alive, therefore it's working. So there's some maladaptive ways it's working and we need to change those and I have, but like, I'm not ill, you know, my brain just grew in a direction that wasn't really helpful, but I am physically alive. So I'm going with it works. Well, and it's, you know, the behavior, you were able to sort of stop the behaviors, the bad behaviors, which we talked about before, but the underlying issue may continue to plague you from time to time. Oh my gosh, I still get triggered, you know, and when people say can you can you cure trauma? First of all, you need to have a safe environment and not everybody does. Trauma can only heal to the degree that a safe environment is available. Trauma can only heal to the degree that access to resources are available. I had access to really really amazing specialist therapists who knew trauma and who knew the brain. Not everyone has that. So to the degree that safety this is like the trauma triad. This is like, can you heal trauma? Okay, if you have safety, if you have access to resources and you have willingness to do this, the stuff, then not trauma can't quote heal, but it can completely change how you experience your body, your brain, your mind, your life, your relationships, all of the things. Yes, there is hope for yeah. all of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um you actually mentioned depression and anxiety and you had this like amazing post. I'm, I'm going to do it off the top of my head. So, but you, you, ha your Instagram is incredible. Everybody needs to follow you. You're just at Brit Frank, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's in the show notes, but you guys are all right now. Just hit pause and go over to Instagram and follow <laughs> Brit Frank. Um, but you, you do these incredible, like kind of they're not all inspirational. They <laughs> like inspirational <laughs> quotes. <laughs> they're true, but I don't aim to always be, you know, positive because sometimes. Yeah. I mean, they're real, but they're yeah. powerful and they hit you in the heart when you need to be hit in the heart. And there was one about depression and anxiety. And, and you had a con, you said, here's what your depression and anxiety would say if you had a conversation with them. Yeah. And depression said something like, hi, I'm depression. I'm energy conservation. Mm -hmm. And anxiety was like, hi, I'm anxiety. I'm energy. And both of them said, we're here to help you. I and I thought that was so powerful. Did I do it right? You did. That was perfect. I got so much heat for that post too. But Why? Why? If we're talking, if we're talking about destigmatizing, well, let's talk about what's the function of depression. And I'm not minimizing the severity of the symptoms. Again, I understand depression. I understand anxiety. Um, so it's not to minimize how awful, terrifying, debilitating, you know. However, if we're talking about stigma, the function of depression is your body thinking you're, you're needing to conserve all your resources to survive a threat. So it's going to put your nervous system into shutdown. That is not a conscious process. That is, you know, like evolution so we can survive things, right? Depression, you know, physiologically, it's, it's a conservation strategy. It's not personal weakness. It's not that you're lazy. It's not that you struggle with willpower or motivation or motivation. Depression functionally is an energy conservation strategy. 
anxiety would be like, you know, the captain sending out way too, you know, anxiety would be like your nervous system thinking you need to light birthday candles with a blowtorch. It's like way too much energy for that particular job. Like, no, like, can we get a bit lighter, somebody, please? That's what it is. Functionally, anxiety is deploying too much energy for the job because your body thinks you need it. You know, depression is like standing next to a candle on a winter's day hoping to get warm. It's like you're not getting enough energy for the job. So both depression and anxiety are a mismatch between what your brain thinks is needed for a job and what's actually needed. So that that helps to destigmatize, too. It is an energy conservation thing. Um, yeah. It's not a conscious process. Like you don't get to pick. Today, I want to deploy 10 units of depression. It's like, no, it just happens. It just happens. And, you know, from what I often see and hear people combine them, I have depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes me feel like uh, the the whole kind of bipolar piece, you know, mm-hmm. I'm down and then I'm up. Mm-hmm. Which, again, if you think about it, makes sense, right? Because our systems are trying to find a state you know, balance or homeostasis, right? So what comes up must come down. So if you're completely on off, it would make sense that your body would try to counterbalance the off with lots and lots of on. And that's the flip-flop between depression and anxiety. Now, the extreme end of that would be bipolar or bipolar two, um, or what they used to call cyclothymia, um, which is like just a lesser version, um, which is not a thing anymore. But it makes sense if you think about it from survival phys- from a survival physiology standpoint. It makes a lot of sense. And again, it's validating. You're not lazy. You're not unmotivated. You're not a bad person. It's like, okay, this is what your body is, thinks is necessary. And then from there, we can implement solutions. But shame does not help anybody. No one has found happiness through shame. It doesn't work. No, no one has. Or guilt which I mentioned earlier, you know, one of my, one of those therapists I mentioned said, I, I just wish I, I think I want to make a whole bunch of t-shirts that just say fuck guilt. (laughs) And everyone can walk around with them. (laughs) Yes. And I mean, I've worked the 12 steps also. And like my guilt was actually a gift because without guilt, you're a sociopath. So shame, let's, let's differentiate here. Shame is a sense of, I am bad. I am fundamentally flawed. Guilt is I did something not good. And I feel not good about doing something not good. Guilt is good. Without guilt, we would all be, you know, doing some pretty jacked up things. So guilt is a gift again, but you want to use it in the right dose for the right job. Well, and it, it sucks to feel guilty. It does. Because it means you know you did something shitty. Right. But you don't always have accurate guilt. Sometimes your guilt is just a story that we tell ourselves. But Mm. guilt in and of itself isn't bad. You know, if someone hits me, I want them to feel guilty because that was a bad thing that they did. Well, and do you ever like find yourself feeling guilty as you're doing the thing that's going to bring? Oh, my God, yes. Which again, congratulations. If you struggle with guilt, you are not a narcissist, nor are you a sociopath. Let's, let's talk about the, um, mind body relationship here, because I feel like we're talking a lot about the mind, but our bodies take it, take a beating from this. Mm -hmm. I mean, personally, my emotions land right in my lower back. Mm -hmm. They just, I've had days where I have felt both like my top and bottom were not connected of Mm -hmm. my body. And also like my front and back were not connected. And I'm like, what's going on here? And it, it felt like it was emotionally driven, not physically driven. 
Mm. Isn't that the wildest experience? I get it's, it in my stomach. I've had IBS forever that tends to flare up if I'm not dealing with my emotions. But I mean, feelings are called feelings because we experience them as body sensations. So emotions are our body sensations with an interpretation, right? So if you've got a racing heart and sweaty palms and someone just cut you off on the highway, you're going to experience anger because your, your interpretation of the, those body feelings is somebody did something to me. Now, if you're about to run a marathon and you have a racing heart and sweaty palms, you'll experience the emotion of excitement because you've been training and the day is finally here. So feelings are just body sensations. Emotions are our body sensations with our interpretation or our story attached to them, which is also a really useful thing to know. Well, and I think what complicates it or makes it more intense for a lot of people is not feeling like they accept and love their bodies before these feelings and emotions hit. Like you're already uncomfortable in your body for a lot of us at different times in our lives and maybe forever. Um, do you, I know you've spoken about this because I've heard you, you know, this idea of not feeling like you live in your body. Um, I think you called it having a floating head. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't come up with that expression, but that's what it feels like, you know, not feeling at home in your body is, you know, trauma healing or any type of wellness journey really is about feeling at home in these organisms that we wander around doing our life in. And it's horrible to be homesick for a body that you can't access. It's like, I, I live here and I can't seem to get here and I can't land here and it's right there, but I can't get to it. It's infuriating and it's crazy making and it's a horrible feeling. I don't know if I answered your question, but like, yeah. Well, and I think the, you know, maybe the question is, is there like, have you helped people find happiness in their bodies? I know it's a holistic thing, but like, is there hope for those people listening? Those of us who are like, I just, I don't like this thing that I have to walk the earth in. Sure. Well, there's hope. And, you know, again, all my childhood trauma manifested into adult trauma. So I, you know, survived sexual assaults as an adult, which is going to further take me away from my sense of being at home in my body. And today I can say I don't like live 100% of the time in body positivity and yay, I'm home. But like, yeah, generally I have a pretty peaceful relationship with the organism I walk around in for the most part. And then I have some really bad days too. There's always hope. And it starts if you want to start your journey, you know, home to your body, start by assuming you're not crazy. And even if you don't know why the shit is going on, assume there's a reason and assume the reason is a good one. And if you do nothing else but start with the assumption that you're not crazy and that your body is trying to help you, that changes the whole game. That opens up an entire avenue of choices available if you start there. It's interesting. I feel like most of us don't do that. Right. Most yeah. people don't. And instead we try to punish our body to change our body. Mm -hmm. But if you ever look back on your life, when you finally stop punishing your body and you just love it for what it is, suddenly it looks different to you and it probably doesn't look different to anyone else. And it feels when it looks different, it feels different. Like it's all tied together. And all of a sudden you're like, Hey, I'm comfortable. Like I just, you know, I want all of us to be comfortable and more than that, to be happy or love our bodies. And the, the, you know, the road to happy starts with neutrality. 
So, you know, we don't actually want to start with that positive body relationship or a good body relationship or even an acceptable one. We want to go from bad to neutral because neutral is an, a, like an achievable place to land. As somebody who starved myself for years and was underweight and then binged on food for years and was overweight and everything in between, body positivity, like go fuck off. Like really for people who were telling me that. No, I will not. This No, I will not do that. Body neutrality. Okay, that's achievable. That's realistic. I can start there. And then from neutral, then you can get to acceptable. And then from acceptable, you can get to comfortable. And then from comfortable, you can get to good. And so on. Happy is the top of Everest. We have to start with base camp one, which is neutrality. Yeah. And you're going to go up and down probably throughout the process. Mm -hmm. um, We're such a goal-driven society of high performance. You know, it's like, instead, a lot of people, instead of saying like, let's start at neutral, they're like, this is what I want to be. And they point to like a photo when they were 17 on the beach or something. I mean, it's like, A, you're never going back there. Uh Like, put it out of your head, but it's like the highest possible pinnacle you could, you could be at. And it's just un, um, it's un, un, unrealistic. And it's unkind to hold yourself to a standard. Plus if it was just a matter of having an amazing body, like there wouldn't, I wouldn't have a job because there are plenty of people who have, I mean, look on Instagram. Oh my God. I just want to quit life sometimes when I look, but there are plenty of people with perfect bodies and they're not, necessarily happy. So we want to make sure that if you want like this particular look or physique or state of physical strength, which is great. That's awesome. Do that. But happiness is going to be a combination, one of which being safety and feeling at home in our skin. You can have a perfect body and not feel at home at all. You know, the word perfect, man, that's Uh, a, that's a beast. Totally. Totally. And I think, but I think a lot of people have some concept of perfect in their minds, not just for their bodies, but for anything they're doing. Um, I often quote my nine-year-old. She, <laughs> She's of the generation of like, we actually have to try to push her sometimes because she's so like, you know, just wants to be happy-go-lucky and bebop around, which is amazing and so refreshing. Um, but one day she came home from a camp and she goes, mom, the only thing in this world that's perfect is the word perfect. Oh, I love her. <laughs> I love her too. And I mean, I love her. Of course, I'm glad you love her too. But, um, you know, we had grown up with this idea of practice makes perfect. And I said something like that. And she goes, no, mom, practice makes progress. Perfect is the only thing. Blah, blah, blah. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, a lot of these things she's hearing from amazing role models out there too. But it's, it's a really incredible and refreshing reframe of that word for me. And I have to try to stop using it. I use it all the time. She'll be doing something and I'll go, perfect. It's like my natural like uh-huh. response to here. And then the sprinkle goes here, perfect. But it's not the right word. I got to stop doing that. <laughs> it's so hard to unlearn it all though, you know? I know. And really. And with the body stuff, to get to body neutrality, it's really helpful instead of focusing on what it looks like or even what it feels like, because you're not going to like what you see and you're not going to like what you feel, then focus on its functionality. What can my body do today? Can I get up and walk? Can I, can I, you know, see outside? Can I feel winds? Can I 
hold a fork and eat food. Not everybody can. So bringing awareness, not to feelings, not to aesthetics, but to function, that's a really good path to get to neutral. It's like, okay, I may not like what I see. I may not like what I feel, but I can appreciate that, you know, I'm peeing right now, which means my bladder is doing its job. Yay. Yes. And as someone whose bladder didn't always do its job, <laughs> I'm very happy when it does. And I can bring awareness to that. And I can bring appreciation to that. Even on a bad nice. day, I can pee. Yay. I'm peeing. <laughs> that I'm going to put a sign in the bathroom that just says, yay, I'm peeing. <laughs> Celebrate um, your bladder is doing because you don't appreciate your bladder until it stops working. Yes, totally. Then peeing becomes a very big deal. Oh my God. Will you please do an Instagram post that says, Yay, I'm peeing? And <laughs> I think that will be a highly liked post. Um, I want to talk a little bit about stuck. Okay. So I you don't know this, but I have for years said my biggest fear in life is being stuck. Hmm. I don't like the feeling. It it's so mean? uncomfortable. I want to know what I'm doing. I want to know I'm going somewhere. I I wouldn't say I'm stuck right now, but I am living in what I call an in-between life chapters. Yeah. I don't have like a career purpose and I'm just sort of living and letting my body recover from my past career. And I realized how tired I am, but being stuck. This is like you're your life's work is going to culminate next year when you get your book published, which we're all going to need to buy. We're going to get on the pre-order list, right? <laughs> and you're calling it the science of stuck. So can you talk a little bit about why that calls to you? Yeah. Well, I'm curious to know for you being so afraid of being stuck, what does the word stuck mean to you? I, I think it, it means that I'm not in motion. And that scares me. I like moving. I like doing. I like achieving. I like connecting. You know, I like all these things that it, that make me feel like I'm a productive human being. Ah, yeah. <laughs> ah, I know. I just pulled something out for you, didn't I? Yeah. Well, you know, for me, the biggest thing that's kind of my passion area is taking the shame off of our struggle. Because when people say they're unmotivated, that's not usually the right word to describe what's happening. Lazy is a bunch of bullshit. So in the book, I go into the origin of that word and where it came from and why we need to not be using that word anymore. Um, because there are sciencey things that happen that create the, and again, it's not about excusing our inertia. It's about understanding it. You know, if I put a five-year-old in my car and said, drive to, you know, Wyoming, and they can't, it's not because there's something flawed about them. It's because they don't know how to drive a car. So this is the same thing. Your sense of stuck is directly proportional to understanding how, and you don't need an auto mechanic degree to drive a car. You know, like you know enough to be able to drive. You don't need a neuroscience degree. And I don't have one. You don't need advanced, you know, whatever training to be able to drive your brain and to understand how to know just enough to maneuver when you get stuck on down or how to maneuver when you get stuck on up. So if we can take the stigma out of stuck, that will make me very happy. <laughs> yes, we are going to take the stigma out of stuck. So we're going to be okay with the occasional being stuck. Well, it's not being okay. It's understanding it. It's okay. I'm stuck right now. Well, 
first of all, where are you stuck? Because not everyone is stuck in every area simultaneously. And it can be very encouraging to remind yourself, all right, well, I'm stuck career-wise, but you're doing a podcast right now. So clearly you're not stuck in every arena because we're having this conversation and you've got all your tech stuff going on and you're asking awesome questions. So clearly you're not stuck in every area. So we want to really take an inventory, you know, where actually am I stuck? Okay, cool. Then what's the function of my stuck? What's going on here? How do I understand it? And then befriend my own body and brain so I can find a solution. Can we hang out more often? (laughs) (laughs) You know, the other thing too that I find is, um, and this might go back to trauma a little bit, is that our brains can get stuck in a thought process too, you know, and especially when you Yeah. And especially when you wake up in the middle of the night and there's one thing looping around your head and you're like, I think I've been up for four hours and I can't change the channel. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a whole, maybe that's a micro, uh, strategy for getting out of the, the thought cycle loop. I don't know. What do you think? Well, first that's the worst, the rumination thing when, you know, and I have OCD. So when you're stuck on a loop, it's like, fuck, I'm stuck on this loop and I'm aware that I'm stuck on this loop. And, you know, I'm a therapist and I get stuck on loops all the time still. It's like, I can't get off the loop. Oh, shit. Okay. I know the things I'm supposed to do to get off the loop, but I'm not doing them. So I'm just going to stay on this loop. So again, starting with, I'm not crazy. My brain is trying to help me is a good place to start. Cause what do we do in the middle of the night? Oh my God, I only have five more hours and then I have to get up and do the thing. And what's wrong with me? And I have to get off this thing. And it's like, sometimes you're not going to get off the loop until the loop's done. So I call it following your drunk friend around the bar kind of technique. It's like, you're not going to reason with your friend. You're not going to logic her out. It's just like you, you want to follow her around to make sure she stays safe. This is what you do when your brain is locked in a cycle. It's like, okay, brain, we're not going to get out of this right now. Is everyone safe? Can we keep ourselves safe? And Okay, yeah, today's going to suck. I'm going to be exhausted, but I'm not going to beat you up for not letting us sleep. It's just like, I'm going to hang out with you and be nice to you until we can get off the thought loop. And then I will work to figure out how to avoid it next time. Oh, and that's going to be the key. Mm-hmm. I think what you can do is also say it is in the middle of the night. Remember what you read right before you went to bed. Because <laughs> that's the thing that always gets me in the middle of the night. Damn it. Um, you know, I know you do a lot of work around the word narcissism. Let's talk about it. <laughs> what is a narcissist? We'll do this quickly. The only other thing with the middle of the night rumination that I can, I want to say real quick is I keep a notebook by my bed because when you wake up and it's all in your head, it's not coming out of your head. Sometimes waking up and just writing it down. And I write down the insane shit my brain is saying. And I just, it's sort of like, it's sort of like peeing. It's like, get it out, drain it out of your head. And sometimes if I get up and write it down, I can get back to sleep. I don't want to write these things down because they're not like awesome things my brain is telling me in the middle of the night, but wake up, write it down. Then you might find it's a little bit easier to not be thinking about it because you know it's right there next to you. It'll, it's waiting Wait. for It's you purged it. Actually, that could become a bestseller. I hope <laughs> you keep your journals. <laughs> <laughs> I throw them all away. Uh, yeah. Oh, write it good. down. Toss it. Boom. It's gone. Right. So um, the- So narcissism is such a trendy word right now and it gets so overused. And it's one of those words that everyone uses it to describe anything about a person they don't like. So the reality and the devastation of narcissism has been a bit, but I'd rather people overuse the word than not use it at all. Cause there was a time where we didn't use that word really at all. 
So narcissism is a characteristic that we all, again, we all have it to a degree. It's just a way we self-protect by not being our real selves, like at its simplest. Everyone has narcissistic or narcissism characteristics to a degree. A narcissist with the T on the end is someone for whom they are so habitually attached to their false images that they're causing harm. They're causing devastation. It's like an addiction. They continue the behavior despite negative consequences. They need more and more and more of it in order to maintain. And despite the chaos that they're causing, they keep doing the thing. So a narcissist is high end of the spectrum, but we all fall on it to a degree. So I always thought a narcissist was somebody for whom the world revolved only around them. Oh, yeah. And that yeah. takes a lot of different flavors. There's like the grandiose kind, the I'm so awesome kind, which we all can think of people who fit that category. But then there's the I'm such a piece of shit. Oh, my God, you should feel so bad for me. And that's like a, still a narcissist. I mean, they don't like themselves very much, but the world still revolves around them, right? Yeah, I'm going like to be the, the smartest person at the party is a narcissist. I'm going to be the dumbest person at a party is also a narcissist, you know? It's like living in the extremes. Yeah. And yeah. all the attention needs to be on me. Mm -hmm. right. um, you do it. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, you do an online class about narcissism, right? What's it called? Um, it's called rethinking narcissism because it's not taught. Narcissism is not taught in graduate school. It's not taught in postgraduate trainings. It's a really new, I mean, narcissism is old as time, but the study in the psychotherapy field is relatively new. It's hard to find good info. So I do a class for um, an organization called Narcissan, narcissan.org. And it's a five hour class on just all the different flavors of narcissism. How do you know if you're with one? What do you do? How do you prevent your kid from becoming a narcissist? this question I get a lot. Um, all the things. Because aren't we kind of all born that way? Well, we're supposed to be. Infants and toddlers and children are supposed to have the world revolve around them. And an adult narcissist is usually the function of those earlier nurture needs not getting met, which doesn't excuse it. It does explain it. Oh, that is big. Um, I mean, there's so much more to do here, but you got to go on and help some other people in their lives. So you know, before I just roll into the wrapping it up here and, and asking you a final question, um, is there anything else you want to, that came to mind throughout this conversation where you're like, oh, I forgot to share that, or I have to say this before we go? Well, my biggest thing, and I will say this from any microphone I'm handed is I don't care how severe your symptoms. I don't care what kind of fuckery has gone down. You are not crazy. You are not lazy and you're not unmotivated. Like there are no unmotivated people. It's just a question of what's going on in your brain and what's the perceived threat and how do we work with it? So like, you're not lazy, you're not crazy and you don't struggle with motivation even if you think you do. So you um, may have just answered my final question that I ask <laughs> every guest who comes on. So if you did just say, I answered it. Um, okay. If you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget that helps them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Well, I'll give you something different because I just said the other thing. Um, the one thing I would want people to remind themselves is you, even if you don't know why you're triggered, even if you don't know why you're reacting, even if you don't know what the hell is causing the things inside you to happen, there's a reason. There is a reason, even if you don't know what it is. And you don't need to know the reason to feel better. 
Like we can get you to better, even if you have no idea, even if you blocked out your whole childhood, even if you can't remember what you had for breakfast yesterday, you don't need to remember or know why to get better and to feel better. That's comforting. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're comforting. Thank you. Thank you you for taking your, A, your time today. Thank you for taking your vulnerability and sharing that to help other people. You're truly an amazing human being. You're doing something that's, I think many people would consider very difficult and you make it look really easy. And that's when you know you're talking to someone who's, you know, truly great. You're like the Olympic gold medalist of psychotherapy. So thank you. Thank you. And I received that. But that said, I promise you I'm going to get off this call and immediately go into a shame spiral, a post vulnerability hangover, if you will. Of, oh, I can't believe I said that. What the hell was I thinking? So like that is guaranteed. It's That spin has already begun. So I do appreciate the feedback and I receive it. And I'm still fully human and I'm fully going to need a day to recover from oh the sharing, my which I'm oh fine. My gosh. Which is fine. Well, I want to just tell you that <laughs> there is a reason. <laughs> I'm going to throw all your things back to you right now. Hey, you got my phone number. Give me a call anytime that shame cycle hits. Um, you're amazing. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And uh, we are definitely all better for you. So let's get over there, everybody. We're going to follow Britt Frank on Instagram. Look for her next post. Yay, I'm peeing. <laughs> Yay, I'm peeing. <laughs> So much yay on peeing, all the yay. All right, great. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. All right, I am back. What an awesome episode. What an awesome conversation. At least I think it was. <laughs> I'd love to hear what you think, what stood out to you. Can you like shoot me a note, Nicole at NicoleDeBoom.com or post on any of the social media posts that I have out there on Facebook and Instagram about Brit and our conversation today. She is such an incredible person. You know, it's hard to open up like that. Even someone like her who works with people who've gone through trauma, she still goes through that little shame cycle herself when she's open and vulnerable, just like she was today. So please follow her, support her, and uh, let her know how much this conversation meant to you. We all need it. We all need to support support one another these days. So my friends, again, thank you for, for tuning in. Thank you for being there for me. Thank you for digging deep and carving out your time in your day to listen to the different people and the different nuggets that I bring to this world. I don't have any big plans to stop. I'm really enjoying the ride. Thanks for being on it with me. And now you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.